have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. To the Gospel of John and chapter 17. And we'll read together this morning verses 1 through 19. John chapter 17. Please follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them these, the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given them that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Let me ask that we pray once more together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray once more before the preaching of your word that you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would do for us something like that thing you did for your disciples all those years ago. Open up our minds to understand the scriptures. Open up our minds to understand your word and help us to see in this passage in John's gospel and in this prayer of the Lord Jesus wonderful things for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. John 17, which is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, for centuries has been one of the best beloved passages by Christian people, and deservedly so. There's so much in John 17 that is a source of comfort and consolation for believers. More than that, this is a passage that Christians tend to return to, I think, again and again to draw uh, fresh comfort. And one of the reasons I think that Christians return to John 17 so often is that 
there, there's so much depth in John 17, and there's so much in John 17 that is profound and rich. And, and maybe you have this experience. I, I usually feel this way after reading Jesus' prayer to his father in John 17. It's almost like you've been in something of another world or something like that. There's something marvelous and glorious and beautiful in this passage, and you feel like you've just scratched the surface and you want to go deeper and understand better and better. And maybe you have this experience as well. Every time I return to Jesus' prayer here in John 17, it's like I see just a little bit more. It's like I see new details and, and, and more connection and cohesion to the overall prayer. Uh, in that sense, maybe the prayer is like a, a painting, some sort of masterpiece, a, a real great work of art, a great masterpiece. You look at it and you stare at it and you linger on it and you go over it again and again and you see new details and new points of connection that enhance the beauty of the overall masterpiece. And I think that's one of the reasons why this passage has, has been so important and precious to the people of God. There's so much depth here. But I, I think the reason why the passage is most precious to God's people is actually because it reveals something to us that is actually very, very simple. Uh, so simple, the smallest child can grasp it. Uh, something so simple and so sweet. Something that's revealed actually only in a few other places in the Bible. And it's something that, that though simple, still confounds us and amazes us as if it's almost too good to be true and just a little bit out of our reach. And it's something that, if rightly appreciated, has the power, I think, to entirely change our outlook on the Christian life. What am I talking about? What am I referring to? I'm referring to the very simple truth that Jesus is praying for me. That if I'm a Christian, if I'm a child of God, Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. It doesn't take an expert in hermeneutics to see in this passage that Jesus is praying for his people. And this is not revealed in many other places in the Bible, but one of the places it is revealed most prominently is the book of Hebrews. Uh, there in the book of Hebrews, uh, what's articulated is that Jesus uh, is our great high priest, and he performs for us the functions of a great high priest in far superior a manner than any of the old priests of the Old Testament. And so we read statements like Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Like, why is Jesus alive? Why does he live? Why did he rise from the dead? Why is he seated at the right hand of God the Father? One of the things he's doing, one of the reasons why he lives, is to continually intercede for us as his people. To, to continually intercede for his sheep, to continually intercede for Christian people. Another verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 24, we read that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What is Jesus doing now? According to this passage, he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf, as our high priest, as our advocate, as our mediator, he appears in heaven in the presence of God on our behalf. And I'll just say, I don't think Christian people think about this enough. We reflect, of course, on, on that 
great work of atonement that Christ accomplished for us in going to the cross in payment for our sins, but we often neglect to think upon, to reflect upon the present tense ministry of the Lord Jesus. What is it that Jesus is doing now? He's interceding for us. He's advocating for us. He's pleading the merits of that sacrifice on the cross. He appears in heaven before God in His presence on our behalf. There's a great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane. We did a a men's breakfast on McShane several months ago. He lived in the early to mid-1800s, pastored in a place called Dundee. And Robert Murray McShane was known for being especially pious and, and for walking with God. Everyone who knew him was just so impressed by how close this man was to God and how he prayed and how he studied and how he meditated on the Word and how he engaged with God. He actually died when he was, I think, 29 or 30 years old. He was only a very young man, uh, but was very intimate and close with God. He once said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. Jesus is praying for me. He says, if I could sort of put my ear to the wall. When we were kids, we were taught if you took a cup and put it to your ear and leaned against the wall, you can hear what was going on in the next room a little more clearly. If I could do something like that and put my ear against the wall and hear the Lord Jesus praying for me, what effect would that have on me? McShane says, I wouldn't fear a million enemies if I could hear the voice of my Savior praying for me in the next room. Uh, Some of you might remember this. We actually, this this fellowship, Emmanuel Church, used to meet downstairs. We didn't own this building. Uh, We met in the basement. We were just renters back then in the fellowship hall immediately below us and folded chairs, a standing mic and a rickety podium. And um, uh, you might remember those of you who were there, um, at at 11 o'clock I would get up to preach and that was just when Northwest Baptist Church was starting their service up here in this room. And even if you listen to old recordings of, of the sermons, you can hear uh, about when I was through with the opening prayer, uh, the sound of the organ in the background as, as I preached. And uh, maybe for some of us that was distracting, maybe it was stirring, I don't know. But um, imagine if, as, as we sit here right now in the worship of God under the preaching of His Word, if we could hear faintly in one of these side chambers, the Lord Jesus Himself praying for us. Think of what gravity would fall on this occasion. Think of the intensity that we'd feel at every moment. Think of the sense of wonder and privilege. The Son of God incarnate is praying for me. I can hear His voice in the next room even as we worship Him this morning and open up His Word. McShane says the distance makes no difference. Makes no difference at all. Jesus is in heaven, appearing in the presence of God on our behalf, and He's praying for His people. You might ask, if if He is praying for me, if He's praying for us, well, what does He say? If I come up in the interactions between the Father and the Son, what is it that's being said about me? Well, the best description we get of what Jesus says about us in prayer, I think is contained in John 17, the passage that we've turned to this morning. Now, we're spending three weeks in this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Last week, we considered the first five verses of this prayer and considered what it is that Jesus prays for Himself. 
Now, I'm aware it was the last Sunday of the year. Lots of people were out. I think there were more people away than there were here. That sermon's online if you'd like to listen to it. The basic premise of the sermon was that at the center of all the universe, and even at the center of the gospel and redemption itself, is the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that it's not in any way inappropriate as Jesus confronts his final hours. He's, he's anticipating going to the cross in just a few short hours for him to ask God, now, God, as my hour has come, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. And we considered that uh, our salvation, our experience of eternal life actually enters in to this exaltation and promotion of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Well, now we come what is to, to what is classically considered the second section of the high priestly prayer, and that's verses 6 through 19. And in these verses, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. Of these 11 men who are there, Judas is gone. Now the 11 are here, and Jesus prays for his disciples. And then next week, God willing, we'll consider verses 20 through 26, Jesus' prayer for the church, uh, particularly those who will believe on behalf of the witness of these disciples. So we'll be looking this morning at verses 6 through 19, and we have two questions that will frame our time this morning. And the first question is this. How does Jesus describe his disciples in his prayer for them? How does Jesus describe his disciples in his prayer for them? And then the second question we'll consider is what does he actually pray for them in these verses? But first of all, how does Jesus describe his disciples in his prayer for them here in verses 6 through 19? I should just state this as, a, as an assumption on my part. I'm not going to argue for it. Uh, but... but I believe everything that Jesus says about these 11 men, about these disciples, can be said about every true Christian, every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's somewhat debatable, but, but I think, uh, as we'll see, everything Jesus says in terms of describing these disciples uh, can be said of every true child of God, which means there's a couple things we need to see here. Uh, first of all, we can see in this prayer uh, something of a description of what it means to be a disciple. These are not the super Christian disciples. These are ordinary disciples. Now, they had an extraordinary calling, but they're men just like us. And uh, what we see in this passage is very helpful in putting together our identity as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we can see, I think, is how Jesus thinks about us, how he regards us as his people. So that's what I want us to see under this first heading. I've listed four things we can see here in terms of how Jesus describes his disciples. They can be summarized in a number of ways. I just have four of them here, okay? The first is this. How does Jesus describe his disciples in his prayer for them? As having been chosen by God. As having been chosen by God. If you would look at verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Assumed in this prayer is the doctrine of sovereign election. Uh, that, that God has chosen uh, certain ones whom he will draw to himself savingly. Who he will effectually call and effectually save. He says in another place, I'm not, not praying for the world. I'm praying for those, Father, whom you have given me out of the world. Uh, the idea is, and we've seen this in other places in John's gospel... Uh, the Father is giving a love gift of souls over to the Son. 
And all those whom the Father gives to the Son, they will come to the Son in saving faith. They will be given the gift of faith and will be drawn to the Father. We see this maybe most famously, prominently in John chapter 6 and verse 37, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, like those, those souls, His elect, all those whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is something further. It's something more than uh, John 3.16. John 3.16, a glorious passage. It's in many ways the gospel message that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, meaning whoever from among the world believes in Him, will not perish but have everlasting life. But, but now, now we're getting to go behind that a little bit in this prayer between the Son and the Father. And what we see here is that actually God has elected, chosen souls from out of the world, and He has given them over to His Son, and they will be sovereignly drawn to the Son in saving faith, and Jesus will save them and He will keep them forever. And Jesus, in this prayer, He wants to call this to the Father's mind. He says, Father, remember, you, you chose these men. You chose these disciples. These are your special people. These are your elect people. These are those ones from among the world who you chose, who you elected, who you took from out of the world and gave as a gift to me, and now we share them together because all yours are mine and mine are yours. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Sometimes people will say, well, we're all God's children, right? We're all God's children. Uh, there's a Christmas song that says that, Santa knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. Okay, that's all wrong. <laughs> we're, we're not all God's children. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So what do you need to appreciate as those listening in on this prayer, Jesus regards you, Christian, as one who has been chosen by God and who belongs to Him in a special way. And now everything else Jesus prays now springs from this fact. He's praying for His elect people. So the second way in which we're described uh, by Jesus in this prayer, we're described as having been chosen by God, secondly, as having been given the gift of eternal life as having been given the gift of eternal life. Now, you have to hop back up to the early verses of the prayer to appreciate this one. In verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? To all whom you have given Him, to all of the elect, to those special people. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The theme of life, sometimes we refer to as eternal life, but the theme of life, eternal life, comes up again and again in John's gospel. We saw it in the opening prologue, right? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says, I'm the life of the world. He says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 3, 16, we're told that for all those who believe on the Son of God, they will have everlasting life. In the purpose statement of John's gospel, in John 20, verse 31, we read, these things have been written that you may believe, you the reader, you the listener may believe, 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, so the, the purpose, in some sense, of John's gospel is that people would appreciate the gospel, that they would see the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that they would have faith in him unto everlasting life. Well, what is eternal life in John's gospel? We talked about this some last week, only briefly. We really should have spent more time on this. We don't have to wonder what eternal life is. It's expressly defined for us in verse 3. Eternal life is not endless days on the golf course. It's not just an eternity uh, by the pool or something like that. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. So, so eternal life should not be conceived merely or just as like endless quantity of days, but rather a certain quality of life we enjoy by virtue of knowing God experientially. And we just get a taste of that now as Christians. But see, one day we'll know him and enjoy him in sinless perfection. It's the greatest and highest good any of us could possibly experience. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's knowing God experientially, knowing communion with him, fellowship with him, relationship with him, intimacy with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what eternal life is. And Jesus says of his disciples, these are the ones who have been given the gift of eternal life, meaning they have been introduced to an actual vital, intimate relationship with God himself. Father, these are your elect people, and these are the ones who know you, who have been given the gift of eternal life. And Jesus says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, Father, you've been revealed to them. I've, I've shown them, I've disclosed something of your person to them. These are the ones who have experienced eternal life. They have come to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So Jesus says, in essence, Father, I've revealed you to them. I've manifested your name to them. They know you. They have been given the gift of eternal life and have come to know you, and they have come to share in the life that we have with one another. Well, the third way now that Jesus describes his disciples is having been chosen by God, as having been given the gift of eternal life, thirdly, as having kept Jesus' word. We could say as having kept the Father's word. Actually, if you read the text carefully, they're interchangeable, the Father's word and the Son's word. So the heading is as having kept Jesus' word. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. In another place in John's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now here in this prayer to his father, he says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That is a fantastic description of a Christian, as, as one who has kept the Lord's word. Don't you want to be described that way? I want to be described that way. They have kept your word. Uh, it reminds me of that commendation that Jesus makes of his people in another gospel. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. 
These men had kept Jesus' word. And this is how he describes them in his prayer to the Father. Who who were these men? What can we say of them? Well, apparently they're men who kept Jesus' word. These men had left all to follow Jesus. These men had endured some measure of derision and opposition from others to follow Jesus. These men had been with Jesus, had worked alongside Jesus, had been discipled by Jesus. These were faithful men who had kept Christ's word. You remember the scene in John chapter 6? There Jesus feeds the multitudes with bread, miraculously reproduces bread and feeds the crowds there. And then he tells them later on as they follow him across the Sea of Galilee, he says, do not labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And Jesus goes on to say, I think in verse 36 or 37, I am the bread of life. Uh, whoever follows me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And Jesus begins to say that if you're to have him, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the crowd say, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult saying. We can't, we can't stomach this. We can't abide by this. And what you have in John 6 is the once enthusiastic response of the crowds dissipate into apostasy. And and thousands leave the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 65, 66, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, look, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter stands up for the group. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God, the, the Christ of God. These men stuck with Jesus. These men believed Jesus. These men were faithful. They had kept Jesus' words, despite all that was disappointing about these men. This is how Jesus saw them, as those who had stuck with him, who had persevered with them, as those who had received him and trusted in him, those who had been faithful, those who had kept his word unto the end. Well, that's the third way in which Jesus describes these disciples. Now the fourth and final way in which they're described. A little bit longer heading. They've been chosen by God, given the gift of eternal life. They've been described as having kept Jesus' word, fourthly and finally, as belonging to Jesus in a special way and as being separate from the world. As belonging to Jesus in a special way and as being separate from the world. Verses 9 and 10, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. So he's not praying for the world, but for those God has given him from out of the world. Christ's people are uniquely the object of his prayers because they are uniquely his. He says, they're mine, they belong to me. Is there any safer place to be than to be the possession of Jesus? He says, they're mine. Then verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he repeats that same statement in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What is Jesus saying? He's recognizing that they belong to him. And because they belong to him, now they have a new posture toward the world, and the world has a new posture toward them. Because they've received Christ's word, and because they've followed him and are committed to obeying him, Jesus says, the world hates them. Because they're with me, Jesus says, the world hates them. 
because fundamentally they no longer identify with the world but with Christ, and that puts them in conflict with the world. And, and now even their origination is understood to be different. They are said to be of Christ, not of the world. There's been so decisive a break between their connection with the world that they're now said to be of Christ. They're of me. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. Briefly, three quick truths we should see here. Number one, you cannot be with Christ and with the world. You cannot be with Christ and with the world. The issue is allegiance. The issue is commitment. The issue is who you will follow. You cannot serve God and man, Jesus says in another place. There will be a conflict. You cannot follow Christ and be friends with the world. The Bible insists on this dichotomy. It's not well. you can have some of the world and some of Jesus. You've got to have all of Jesus, but still kind of cozy up to the world. There's a dichotomy. To be with Jesus is to have a fundamentally new posture toward the world. The Apostle John opens this up in his epistle. First uh, John, in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Dichotomy, a break, they're exclusive. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some of us may need to make a cleaner break with the world in 2020. You cannot follow Christ. You cannot be of Christ and be of the world. That's how Jesus describes a disciple. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. A second truth we should see, uh, following Christ will attract the animosity of the world or the opposition of the world. Following Christ will attract the animosity of the world. It's not presented to us as a hypothetical. It's presented to us as an inevitability. Uh, in the passage that Zach preached a few weeks ago in John 15, we read these verses, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Appreciated the question that Zach challenged us with in that message. Do, does our Christianity offer anything for the world to oppose? Uh, there's a lot of vanilla Christianity out there where we strip back all the offensive elements of Jesus' message and Jesus' gospel and Jesus' precepts, and, and, and man, we just now look very similar to the world. It could just as easily be said that we're part of the world. Does our Christianity, our way of life, our way of following Christ, offer anything for the world to oppose? Now, I'm not saying that, that we should become pugilists. Christians should not be fighters. Christians should not be brawlers. Christians should not be those who seek to create conflict and controversy unnecessarily. But there is this inevitability that Jesus acknowledges in his discourse with his disciples and in his prayer to his Father. Because they identify with me, because they're mine, they will become the objects of the world's opposition. It cannot be avoided. Third and final truth before moving from this point. Very simply, Christians are to be separate from the world. They're to be in some sense separate from the world. Jesus says that they're in the world. They're in the world. I don't ask, Father, that you take them out of the world. Like that would be one way 
uh, uh, to keep them safe, but they're going to be in the world. And yet, that language we so often use, in the world, but not of the world. I don't identify with the world, the world's way of thinking. I recognize fundamentally I'm a sojourner now in this world. I, I, I am separate from the world in some form or fashion. It's very common in Christian circles today to actually promote as much affinity with the world as possible. I'm not talking about that as some sort of private motive. Read the books. Read what the gurus are saying. That we should promote as much affinity with the world in our worship services, for example, as possible. If, if we want to know what the music is going to be in the family of God and in the worship of God, we just, what, is, what does the world want? What, what would make the world feel most at home in the assembly of God's people? That's all backwards. That's all wrong. You read the Bible, you read the New Testament and the descriptions of worship, there is to be this quality of transcendence, this quality of the glory and majesty of God that's present, this sense that the Spirit of God is among this people. And rather than actually trying to promote affinity with the world in our services, it is appropriate to evidence and exhibit a certain separateness from the world. That if the Spirit of God has mercy, will become compelling to lost people who sit in the context of the worship service. Uh, where they will do, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, they'll sense that the glory of God is among you. The Spirit of God is here, and they will fall on their faces feeling exposed and will repent of their sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the intended effect the worship of God is to have upon lost people, upon the world. They're not to come in and say, man, these people are just like me. This is just like what I like, man. This is great. But I think this is different strikingly so, drastically so. And there's something here that I don't have that I want, that I need, that is the answer to the deepest problems of my soul and my life. Sometimes in evangelism, uh, uh, we're encouraged. Try to evidence as much affinity with the lost person as possible. You understand there's something so compelling about actually exhibiting the difference that exists between Christian people and non-Christian people. Not in a holier-than-thou sort of way, not in a self-righteous sort of way, like, see, we're just so much better than you. People should know that we're sinners saved by the grace of God, but they should see something of the effect of the grace of God in our lives. They just think there's a separateness about this person. There's something there. There's something compelling, and it, it should be attractive. I mean, should the Spirit of God be merciful and open their eyes to see it, it should be attracted. It should attract them to the way in which we live. Christians are to be separate from the world. Well, this is how Jesus describes his disciples in his prayer to the Father. Four things. They have been chosen by God. They have been given the gift of eternal life. They have kept Christ's word. And they belong to Jesus in a special way and are separate from the world. Just one observation before moving to the petitions themselves. Jesus doesn't once acknowledge their many failings. In this prayer, he doesn't once acknowledge all the ways in which these disciples have disappointed him. As he's describing uh, his sheep, the children of God, those who are following him, he doesn't once bring up all the ways in which they've grieved him and grieved the Holy Spirit. Isn't that striking? Because I'm so aware of my failings, not nearly to the degree that I should be, but, but we're so disillusioned with ourselves and we see our sins and we think these must loom so large in God's eyes. When he sees me, I, I just must be covered in sin. Not according to this prayer. Jesus regards these men with all this disappointing about them as faithful 
as precious to him, as special to him, as belonging to him. And that's so amazing because it's, it's not when Jesus is talking to them, he's actually talking to his father. Maybe you've had this experience, I hope not. You have someone you admire so much and appreciate so much, you look up to this person and they're encouraging to you and affirming to you and you feel loved by them, you feel safe with them. And then you find out when that person was alone with somebody else behind your back, they said, just terrible things about you. Man, how disillusioning that can be. How hurtful that can be. Well, that's not what happens here with Jesus. When he's with his father, what's emphasized? Not their many disappointments, not the ways in which they've grieved the father and the son, but they're, they're ours, father. Yours they were, you gave them to me. All mine are yours and yours are mine. They belong to us. And they have kept your word and they're separate from the world and they're our special possession and they've been given the gift of eternal life. They're our elect people, which is, I just think, a glorious fact. All right, the second major heading. Now, what does Jesus pray for them? We've seen how he describes them in this prayer, but what does he actually pray for them? And I'll try to be more brief with this heading. Two, two prayers in particular that, that I can see. They lead to certain effects that we won't exactly take up in this message. We'll reserve those for the next message. But two particular petitions. The first is this. Jesus prays that the Father would keep them. Jesus prays that the Father would keep them. Please look with me at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That issue of oneness, we'll, we'll take that up next time. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Skip down to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The central prayer in these verses is that the Father, by his initiatives, would keep these disciples, that he would keep them in his name. Now, that raises a question. What's meant by that phrase? Father, keep them in your name, the, the, in your name there. A couple of different ways it could be understood. It, it could be referring to the resources and power that the Father has by virtue of His name, by who He is. Keep them in your name or protect them by the power of your name. Keep them with the resources that you alone have in order to keep them. It's one way you could interpret it. Some have also interpreted it to keep them in your name to mean keep them committed to your name. Uh, keep them devoted to God, following God, trusting God, believing in His name. Keep them faithful. Keep them committed to be your people. I think that's more the idea here. Think, keep them faithful. Keep them as Christians. Keep them in your name, like location. Keep them in the faith. Keep them in the way. Keep them in your name. And this is in accord with what Jesus has said in another place in John chapter 10, there in the Good Shepherd discourse. Jesus says in John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So now in this prayer, Jesus is saying, Father, keep, keep your word. Keep them in the way. Keep them in the truth. Keep them faithful. Don't let anything snatch them out of your hand. It's God's initiatives that are emphasized. 
God is doing the work of keeping his people in his name, keeping his people in the way. It's what God is doing sovereignly to keep them from falling away, from being attacked by the evil one, from drifting into apostasy. So what can we appreciate here clearly and wonderfully is that salvation is from beginning to end quite literally in the hands of a sovereign God. Why will you wake up and have faith tomorrow? It won't be because you had the wherewithal. It won't be because that's just what I do. It won't be because you were just so committed and maybe your brother or your sister wasn't. It won't be because well, I, I actually kept going to small group when other people were at home watching TV. It's not going to be that. You will wake up and have faith tomorrow because God the Father is sovereignly holding on to you and he's keeping you and because the prayers of the Lord Jesus, your great high priest, are actually effectual. No one got here by virtue of their, their strength and their good qualities. You don't get a seat at the table by your effort. We are here as Christ's people, and we are given a ticket to heaven by virtue of what God has done and what he is committed to do on our behalf to keep us. And because Jesus is committed to appear before God in his presence on our behalf to continually make intercession so that we might be saved to the uttermost. So Jesus prays, Father, do that thing that only you can do. If, if, if their salvation depended on them, they'd lose it. If this was up to them, they'd fail. But Father, you keep them. Keep them in your name. Keep them trusting you. Keep them following you. Keep them committed to you. And there's an assumption there, isn't it? That, that we as God's people need keeping. We need to be kept. The idea is, is there's, there's so much in the world that would destroy us and bring us down. Jesus says, well, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Like if he wanted us to be saved, one of the things he could do is save us and then take us out of the world. He says, I'm not doing that. I'm going to keep them in the world, and that's hostile territory. Uh, they're sinful. They're weak. I know that about them. They're so prone to failure. There's so much in the world that would attack them. The world is going to hate them and be hostile to them, and the evil one is going to want to destroy them. So, Father, keep them. Keep them. They need to be kept or else they will fail. They're so fragile. But Father, you need to undertake. Do the work that only you can do sovereignly to hold them fast and to see them through and to keep them unto the end. Now the second petition that Jesus prays. Praise Father, keep them in your name. Secondly, finally, he prays that the Father would sanctify them. He prays that the Father would sanctify them. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, it would be very easy, right, if, if we think through our lens of systematic theology to think, okay, sanctify. We have justification. What's justification? It's God in a moment declaring us right in the courtroom of heaven. It's a forensic term, and it takes place at a punctiliar moment in time. We're justified, right? Saved by God's grace, given new birth. And, and then 
On the other end of the spectrum, we have glorification. What's glorification? When we finally will be with the Lord, there's coming a day when he will return and inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll be with him forever. And the time between justification and glorification is sanctification, right? At least a few of you got it right, okay? Uh, uh, right, and, and, and what is sanctification? When we talk about sanctification, if, if we're at small group and, and, and I pray, uh, Lord, help us to make progress in sanctification, we're talking about God's progressively making us more holy, Right? I want to get better at fighting my sin. I want to get better at obeying the commands of God. I want to be sanctified, right? And, and, and we can be tempted with that lens to import the meaning of sanctification that we have in that scheme into this passage. That would actually be wrong. In, in verse 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them. And then he says of himself in verse 19, for this reason I consecrate myself. Now, I don't know why, if you're reading the ESV, I don't know why they do this, but the Greek word there is actually the same word for sanctify and consecrate. It's hagiazo. Think of the Hagia Sophia church in Istanbul. Hagia Sophia is holy wisdom, okay? That's the word that's used in this passage in verse 17 and 19. In the first place, he says, Father, sanctify these men in the truth. And then he says in verse 19, I sanctify myself or I consecrate myself. Now, if the meaning of that word, if we understand the meaning of that word to be to be made more progressively holy, to get better at fighting sin, to get better at obeying the commands of God, well, how could that be said of Jesus, right? Could he really say, I sanctify myself, like I make progress in holiness or something like that? Shouldn't read it that way. Actually, the word consecrate isn't so bad a translation in both instances. What Jesus is in effect praying is that God would consecrate us, sanctify us, set us apart for a holy purpose. Uh, in, in the old covenant, if you sanctified a vessel for use in the temple, it would be set apart now for a holy purpose, for a sanctified purpose, for a consecrated purpose. Jesus says, I consecrate myself. I'm set aside, set apart by God for a holy purpose. And he's praying that we would be sanctified, we would be consecrated for a holy purpose. If that's the interpretation, then verse 18 really becomes a link, doesn't it? Because there Jesus says, Father, just as you have sent me, I've been consecrated, sanctified, and set apart for a holy purpose, a holy mission, so I am sending them, setting them apart, consecrating them for a holy purpose. And now our Personal growth and holiness comes into play here, right? If we're going to be set aside for a holy purpose, we better be holy vessels, and we want to grow in holiness and in that type of sanctification. But the essence of the prayer is, is, is this. It's, it's not exactly to say, just make them more progressively holy, help them to grow in grace or something like that. It's say, Father, I am sending them into the world. I'm not taking them out of the world. I could do that, but, but we're not going to take them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world for a sanctified purpose, for a mission, for a holy calling. I'm consecrating them for service to a holy and divine purpose. Now, the question might arise in our minds, well, what's the purpose? What's the mission? Well, what do I get consecrated for? The text actually doesn't say, but I don't think we need to use a great deal of imagination to arrive at a meaning here, at least a general meaning. Jesus was consecrated. He was set apart for a holy mission by God to represent the Father. He came to reveal the Father, to represent the Father, to appear as the Father's ambassador, to carry out the Father's purposes, to promote the Father's teaching, to do the works that He had been shown and had been given by His Father. 
Jesus says, just as you have sent me, verse 18, so I am sending you. We now are sent into the world, consecrated, sanctified, set apart, to be Jesus' ambassadors in the world, to represent Jesus in the world. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going away, I've kept them in your name, but I'm, I'm leaving. But it won't be without this commission. It won't be without this sending. These men are going to be my ambassadors. They're going to represent me. Now, it's at this point that someone could say, well, that referred in a special way to the apostles. And there is a sense in which it refers to them in a special way. But there's also a sense in which this applies to every true Christian. What's the bottom line for me as I read this prayer? I should be thinking, God, the Lord Jesus, has set me apart. He's sanctified me for a particular purpose. I'm to represent him in the world. I'm to be his ambassador in the world. I am left here on this earth not to just kind of run out the clock and live out my days so I could get to heaven. He actually has a purpose for me. And brothers and sisters, this should loom large in our minds. Jesus is praying to his Father, sanctify them, consecrate them, so that they might fulfill all the purposes and plans that we have to work out in and through them. You are a a holy set-apart vessel for use in God's world. Jesus has, in a sense, sent us, left us, commissioned us into the world to be his ambassadors. And we're to be sanctified then in the truth, to know God's word, and we're to trust God's word, and we're to continually study God's word that we might be more fit and equipped for this service in the world. We need to be equipped for the work that God has given us to do in representing him as his ambassadors to the world. We're to be sanctified in the truth set apart, consecrated, because as the Father has sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent us. Well, as we close now, we've looked at how Jesus describes his disciples. We've looked at these two petitions. Next week, we'll consider Jesus' prayer for the church, those who would believe through Jesus' witness. I just want to close with three brief implications, three brief implications. The fact that Jesus is praying for us should create in us three things, at least three things. The fact that Jesus is praying for us and praying in this way for us should create in us three things. First of all, it should produce emotional and spiritual stability. It should produce emotional and spiritual stability. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The point is Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for me. Therefore, I am saved to the uttermost, and I will be saved to the uttermost, and this gives me stability. This helps me to stand amidst all that would harm me and harass me in this world. I'm to recall Jesus is praying for me. And and that fact, that truth, gives me stability, it gives me boldness, it gives me confidence, it helps me to persevere. Remember what McShane said, if I could hear Jesus praying in the next room for me, I would not fear a million enemies. But the distance makes no difference, he's praying for me still. Stability, groundedness, there's nothing I need to fear if Jesus is praying for me. If my advocate is appearing before God in his presence in heaven as my great high priest, I don't need to be afraid of anything. There's nothing that will overwhelm and crush my soul. We so often feel discouraged and distressed, 
you're like me, you feel overwhelmed. I, I felt, I was telling Jenna last night, like I've been in something of a fog the last few weeks spiritually. And, and I needed to remember this. Jesus is praying for me still. I'm not going to be overcome. Whatever, whatever trial it is in your life, you're not going to be overcome. Whatever, whatever disappointment, whatever difficulty, some fog of depression or something like that, Jesus is with you and He's praying for you. And right now, He's appearing in the presence of God as your advocate. And He's praying for you like this. He's saying things like, Father, keep Him. Keep her. And sanctify them, equip them, and use them for your purposes in the world. We've left them in the world. We decided not to take them out. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you don't allow the evil one to harm them. Protect them, keep them, and use them for your purposes in the world. This should generate spiritual and emotional stability in our lives. Secondly, the fact that Jesus is praying for us should produce humility. Humility. I am not saved, I am not kept, I am not sanctified by my own doing. These things are the product of the effectual prayers of Jesus, our great high priest. And so I'm to be aware I didn't earn my way into this room, I wasn't better than any, anybody. The difference is Jesus appeared before God on my behalf. Jesus' prayers for me were effectual. He's keeping me. It's not the product of my stick I've just been following the way. I've been hanging in there. I've been doing my part, and that's why I've persevered so far. No, there's to be no boasting for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is to produce the most profound sense of humility. I am certain that if I could lose my salvation, I would. I am certain that it was, if, it, if it was left in my hands, I would fail. I'm certain that if my keeping and my staying in the way were up to my ability to hang in there, well, I'd lose it all and I'd fail. But God is keeping us. God is helping us. God is giving us the ability to persevere. He's working within us, and that should produce the most profound sense of humility. This is all the product of the grace of God. And I know I will have faith tomorrow. And I know that I will die a believer. I know that in my flesh I shall see God because God is doing a work of keeping me. And because Jesus Christ has appeared on my behalf to pray for me, that I might be kept, that I might be safe all the way unto the end. Third and final implication, and then we'll be done. The fact that Jesus is praying for us should produce real love for and a sense of companionship with the Lord Jesus. It should produce real love for and a sense of companionship with the Lord Jesus. Think of how encouraging it is when someone comes to you like they may come to you today and say, I'm praying for you. I just wanted you to know that. I know you're going through a hard time. I'm praying for you. And these are some of the things I've prayed for you this week. I just want you to know that. How encouraging that is. You feel like that person has become a sort of partaker in your life. They've taken on your burdens and your concerns and they've actually brought them to God on your behalf. You feel this closeness to that person. Well, see, Jesus is praying for us. Jesus appears before God like a prayer warrior for us. Could you imagine coming to the prayer meeting tonight and hearing Jesus stand up in the prayer meeting and start praying for you? Wouldn't that make you love him more? 
treasure him more? Feel a sense of companionship with him? That the concerns of my little life and my poor soul are not too insignificant for Jesus to take them to his Father. My name actually comes up in the interactions between God the Son and God the Father. He's praying for me. Let that have its effect. Let your heart run out to God in gratitude and in love and friendship and companionship to see Jesus appearing for you as a prayer warrior for you, bringing your concerns and your burdens to you or to God in prayer should make us want to love him. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you this morning, take heart. Christ is appearing in heaven in the presence of God on your behalf. If you're not a Christian, I have to ask, who is appearing in heaven before God on your behalf? What will you do without an advocate? What will you do without a mediator? Someone must appear on your behalf. Someone must make intercession for you if you're to be saved. Who appears for you? I can tell you, unless you embrace Christ, you will appear for you on the day of judgment, standing in all your sin and all your rebellion and all your shame. And you will beg God for an advocate. You will beg God for someone to appear in your behalf because you cannot take the wrath of God. You cannot be held accountable for your sin. You will be ruined and destroyed. The message of the gospel is that there is a mediator. There is one who is willing to stand as our advocate in the presence of God and to appeal the merits of his blood on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. That if you will embrace the Lord Jesus, he will appear not just once, but perpetually on your behalf. And he'll pray things like this, Father, these are mine. That soul is mine. That one is mine. I shed my blood for him. I shed my blood for her. And that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I will plead for him, for her. You need an advocate. You need one appearing for you in heaven on your behalf. And Jesus is that only mediator between God and man. If you embrace him as your savior in repentance and faith, he will appear on your behalf and he will pray for you and he will save you to the uttermost. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we were to appear before you without the intercession of the Lord Jesus, how afraid we would be. Oh, we would have reason to fear. But God, we thank you that you have undertaken, you have taken the initiatives to provide us with an advocate, to provide us with a great high priest, to provide us with one who can appear on our behalf. Fathers, we sing now to you, and as we come in a few moments to take the Lord's table together, oh, we pray, Father, that what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing for us would appear 
wonderful and marvelous in our eyes. That it would lead us to greater emotional and spiritual stability. That it would lead us to humility. That our hearts would run out to the Lord Jesus in real love for him. Meet with us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.